We're going to dive right in, and because we've got to make the most of our time, and I just I'm going to remind everybody, really, to remind myself, uh, what we are trying to do in this story of Scripture is we're not even necessarily trying to give an in-depth overview of each book. What we're trying to do is, is through each of the books, see the the chronological story, uh, because that's what most of us, and the way most of us remember, especially as we come. Uh, tonight is really the last night of Old Testament um, narrative, history, whatever term you want to call to it, that if you, if you grew up in the church, that you're likely to feel like you still got stuff straight. Saul, David, Solomon. And then after that, nobody knows. It just turns into fruit basket turnover and, and all sorts of stuff. And so in, order, and so in saying that, uh, I am going to have to resist the urge to make all sorts of comments of things we're going to see tonight because there is so much we are seeing and we're going to do a little different. What I'm going to do tonight is, is give you kind of the basic overview of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, but I want you to also understand we're not actually going to make it all the way through First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. We are only looking at tonight the period of Israel's history, the period of our history that we would call the United Kingdom, that period where the 12 tribes of Israel have a king and they are one kingdom as opposed to what we'll look at next time where they are two split kingdoms, which is the situation in Jonah, the situation in Habakkuk, the situation we'll see where we're going Sunday. So uh, if you got your Bibles, we'll pick up in First and Second Samuel. I want you to remember how the book of Ruth ends in the midst of absolute chaos of judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king, there was no central leader figure they were looking to, even though they had a king, God, you end up with this note of hope in, in uh, Ruth uh, where, uh, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, they had relations, the Lord enabled her to conceive, she gave birth to a son. Verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now Samuel doesn't start with David, but we end on that note of hope, knowing uh, what's coming. And so here we pick up in Samuel. And Samuel marks, uh, Samuel marks the transition from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchs, to the time of the kings. This is the transitionary period here, especially in the first part. And with all of these books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all of them are likely one book in the original. We split them up in two for the sake of, of ease, but uh, all of the think of it really as as one solid, one solid book. So this transition, we're going to see uh, chapter 4 is going to mention Eli. Eli is the last of what we would call the minor judges. I remind you, in, in Judges, we saw six cycles of major judges, but there is that one verse in between Judge, I believe, 1 and 2, that mentions Shamgar, and we call him a minor judge, I guess, because he just gets one verse rather than a whole narrative. And so Eli is viewed as a minor judge. And Samuel is really the last of the judges. Second Samuel, especially First Samuel, is going to show us contrast. If you pull out and you read First Samuel, especially in one sitting, you're going to see it much more pronounced than if you just go uh, chapter by chapter or title by title in your Bible. You're going to see a contrast. You're going to see Eli, a failure as a judge, contrasted with Samuel, 
a godly judge. You're going to see Saul, a weak, faithless king, in contrast to David, a faithful, courageous king. And as you move into 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel is then going to take David and going to showcase the, the power and majesty of his reign while also not failing to demonstrate where even David fell in the midst of his grandeur. So uh, who, wrote, who wrote Samuel? Technically, again, it's an anonymous work. The author never names. Uh, it's likely named after Samuel, not because Samuel wrote it necessarily, but as a means of honor. Some do think Samuel wrote a good portion of it, but understand this, Samuel dies before David's ever king, so it'd be kind of hard for Samuel to write the rest of the book. And so some who do think that think that the prophets Nathan and Gad wrote the rest. Regardless, uh, the, the, it covers, the, the, the books of First and Second Samuel are going to cover what is roughly a 110-year period, beginning with the promises, God's promise to uh, bring Samuel to Hannah all the way to uh, David's kingship. It's likely written sometime after the death of King David in 971 BC, which would put it during the reign of Solomon sometime around 960 BC. And in terms of historical connection worldwide at this point, the majority of the major world empires are currently in disarray at this moment. Egypt's power has waned. Assyria is in an in-between phase before they'll grow in power. Babylon is really subject to Assyria. The primary antagonists we're going to see are the Philistines. The Philistines. Who are the Philistines? Literally, they are the sea people. They're not native to the land. They're not the native inhabitants that when Abraham comes into the land and God says, I'm going to give this land to your people, and they're that's not the Philistines. The Philistines have come uh, from various places over the Mediterranean. They are the sea people. They've come by boat, by sea, and they are going to be the major, uh, the major enemies. Now, when we come to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7 show us the, the transition from Eli's leadership to Samuel. Chapter 1, you're going to meet a man from Ramathame Zophim. Try to say that 10 times fast. Uh, there's going to be a lot of names in here, and I'm going to do the best I can, but I didn't get time to proof my uh, pronouncement of all of them today, so we will just deal with it. And if it sounds dumb, you can laugh at me. It's all right. Uh, from the hill country of Ephraim, his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoham. And on down, talks about uh, verse 3, the man would go up from his city yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at, at Shiloh, or mind you, in Shiloh. And uh, Rob, why don't we go ahead and put the first, the first map in there up? Um, I got maps again for you tonight. Aren't we excited? Uh, Shiloh, just to remind you, Shiloh is where the tabernacle is. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's where they're supposed to go to worship. And this map is conveniently not going to have it, but it is uh, in this area. And so wherever, wherever, uh, um, wherever Elkanah is from and his wife Hannah, and he's got another wife, Penaniah, uh, they go up yearly to worship. There's, there's, uh, priest there, Eli, he's got two sons. His sons are wicked. Uh, Hannah would go up. The other wife had kids. Hannah uh, would not have kids. It's an interesting statement. Hannah would give a double portion because he loves, he would give a double portion to Hannah to offer because he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So here is a, a lady struggling with infertility, and in her struggle for infertility, it is a means of divine providence on the story of 
redemptive history. Uh, we're going to see her prayer that she voices in chapter 1. God promises to send her a son. She dedicates that he will, she will give that son back to the Lord there at uh, at Silo. Chapter 2 starts off with her prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, that's a great statement, the sons of Eli were useless men. They did not know the Lord. And it talks about how they defrauded people and sacrifices. And so here we see this contrast with Eli. Eli has failed to pass on the faith. His sons are terrible. Now Look at verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. His mother would make for him a little robe, bring it up to him year from year. She would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Uh, after this, the Lord indeed visited Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. The boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. Uh, Eli is going to rebuke his sons. But look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was continuing to grow and be, be in, uh, in both in favor with the Lord and with people. Of course, we get to chapter 3. Samuel is attending the service of the Lord before Eli. Word of the Lord was rare in those days. So here we're still in this period of the judges. There's no reason to think that we are not still dealing with idolatry throughout the land. We see that Eli, who's acting as the priest there uh, at the tabernacle, his sons are crooked, they're useless, they're wicked. The word of the Lord is rare. Rarely is God speaking because there are issues with, with the people in their wickedness. And so it happens that time. What do I need to do? Oh. Okay. Does it also change the slide? Oh, wow. Look at that. Getting sophisticated in here. Um. But there's the great, the great passage out of chapter three where Samuel's laying down before uh, uh, Samuel's laying down before the lamp of God knocked down. He's laying in the temple of the Lord where the ark was, and the Lord called Samuel and he said, uh, "Here I am." And then Samuel goes to Eli, "Here I am. You called me." And he said, I, I, "I didn't call you." And go back and lie down. He goes back. The Lord calls again. Samuel. Samuel gets up, goes to Eli. Here I am. You called me. I didn't call you. The Lord. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he got up and went to Eli. Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realizes God is speaking to Samuel. And Eli, for all the ridiculousness, Eli does tell him the right thing. Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And the Lord came and stood and called us the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And one, I mean, just it's an incredible truth about the Lord. The Lord has a message he wants to speak. He's persistent. He doesn't give up. He's going to speak. You all, I'm afraid I might miss what God wants to tell me. Well, let that be an encouragement that you're not going to miss what God wants to tell you uh, out of, um, out of uh, accident. You'll miss what God wants to tell you because you heard what he told you and you reject it. But God will persist. He says, speak, Lord. And that ought to be our answer when the Lord speaks. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That ought to be our heart every morning we come into worship. On a Sunday, that ought to be our heart every day. We sit down and come to the Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. But also understand this. Sometimes when the Lord speaks, it's also really hard. Here's Samuel. This is his first personal encounter with the Lord. God is speaking to him. He's not even speaking to his mentor and then priest Eli, but he's speaking to Samuel. And if you follow what he says, he tells this boy, Samuel, hey, you need to tell Eli I'm going to bring judgment upon his house. So you put yourself, you be that 10-year-old kid. 
and you have God tell you, go tell your principal I'm bringing judgment on his house. There's Samuel. So you see things personified by the state of, by the state of, uh, of Israel. Chapter four, the Philistines take the ark in victory. Understand the magnitude of that. The ark is representative of the very presence and power of God. It, it, it houses some of the most precious items of Israel's history to this point. The tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the staff. Um, for the Philistines to take it means God has removed his protection, and in a way, his presence and glory has left the Israelites. This is a major thing, but God is a God who defends himself, and so there's the great story in chapter 5 where the Philistines put the ark in their temple, and every day they come in, and their statue, their idol's been bowed face down before the ark, and finally they realize this is bad news. Let's give it back, and the ark comes back to Israel and you see, so again, some deliverance. So chapters one through seven is, is Samuel rising up, Samuel's ministry, and uh, as, as a judge. And Samuel here is pictured as the godly judge. But look at this in chapter eight. Now it came about when Samuel was old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. Uh, names his sons. Unfortunately, though, even Samuel doesn't escape from this. Verse three, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So verse four, the elders of Israel, that's the head of the tribes, come together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said, behold, you've grown old. So Samuel is, is latter on. I don't know how close he is, but if you follow by the timeline, Samuel is realistically about 70, 80 years old in what trans, when he goes to anoint uh, David. So they say, behold, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. And listen to what they say. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of the Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, so here you are. You've sought to be faithful, obviously not perfect, but sought to be faithful. The people come to you and say, we're sick of you and we don't like your kids and you're getting old. So give us something different. Uh, you're fired. So it goes to the Lord and the Lord said to him, verse Samuel, listen to the voice of the people regarding all they say to you. Because they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. So think about going back to Judges. In that day, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their sight. There was a king in Israel. The Lord God was king in Israel. But the people refused to honor and submit to his kingship. And notice the passage here. The, the, the request here is not, hey, Samuel... We think on a structural level, we, we are really concerned about the leadership of the judges. We, we would like maybe a king. We think that could be, it's not even that. It's we want a king like the other nations around us. We want to be like the world around us, Samuel. That's why God says they've not rejected you. They have rejected me. So understand as we're seeing the sin in Israel here, we don't want to be the light of the world. We don't want to be the unique, distinct nation of, uh, of God. We want to look like the other nations. We're already worshiping their idols. We're already engaging in their sinful practices. We're already intermarrying with them and, and spreading. We're already doing those things. We want to be ruled like they are too. And so God says, okay, we're going to give a king. Now look, Samuel speaks a word. So Samuel spoke the words of the Lord to the people. This is verse 10, chapter uh, 8. 
He said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, so put them in his chariots for himself among his horsemen. They'll go before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties. Some to this, he will take your daughters, use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will give the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive trees, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and vineyards, give it to his officials. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys. He will use them for his work. Then you will cry out on that day because the king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you on that day. So he says, understand what you're asking. You want a king and the king walks in wickedness? You're all going to suffer. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there needs to be a king over us so that, not so that we can have better leadership, not so we can seek the Lord more clearly, so that we may be like all the nations and that the king may judge us he will fight our battles. So the Lord says, listen to their voice. Now here's what's interesting. This is now we come to chapter nine, we come to Saul. So chapters one through seven introduce us to Samuel and contrast Samuel's righteous judgeship with Eli's wicked judgeship. If they show us this, the full state of the land, Israel is rejecting the leadership of God, but God's got a plan here. God's got something he's going to do. So now we come to chapter nine and we meet, look at this verse one. Now there was a man of Benjamin. Remember book of Judges, Benjamin at the end of Judges gets almost obliterated. There's only 600 men left from the tribe of Benjamin. Man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of, uh, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjamite, a valiant, mighty man, or a man of wealth, influence. Uh, he had a son whose name was Saul. And listen to the description. A young, Samuel, you're old. A young and handsome man. In fact, there was not a more handsome man than he among the sons of Israel. And from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Here's what it's telling you. Here's Saul. He comes from a family of prominence, of power, of wealth. His looks, he comes from the kind of family you'd want to pull the king from. He's got leadership potential. He looks like a king. He's handsome. He's taller than everyone. He is everything you would think describing the externals of what you want. And so Saul, you see, you see Saul and Samuel's encounter. Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, you're going to be king. Look at verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send a man from the land of Benjamin. You'll anoint him as ruler over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have considered my people because their outcry has come to me. For when Samuel saw Saul, uh, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke. This one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gateway uh, and said, Please tell me where the seer's home is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go ahead of me to a high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go. Um, and then you come down. They walk through these sacrifices. They walk through this mill. Samuel takes chapter 10, the flask of oil, pours it on Saul's head. There's, here's anointing, kissed him. Has the Lord not anointed you, ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you'll find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, and, and he walks through 
You will go, he gives them all these instructions. Afterwards, you will come to the hill country of God where the Philistine garrison is. It shall be as soon as you've come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down. Uh, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different man. And it shall be that when these signs come to you, you shall do for yourself what the occasion requires because God is with you. And you shall go down ahead of me to Gilgal. Behold, I will be coming down to you to offer burnt offerings, sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days. I come to you, inform you of what you are to do. Then it happened when he turned uh, his back to leave Samuel that God changed his heart. Saul said, I, I, no, I, I don't want to be king. And all those signs came about on that day. So then you look at verse, so here's what you've got with Saul. Saul looks the part. He comes from the family. Saul is John F. Kennedy. He comes from the family of prominence. He's been groomed for the role. He looks the role. He's sturdy for the role. Samuel says, and I mean, do you hear all the things he says? He walks through all of this and, and this is going to happen. The spirit of God's going to come upon you. You're going to be changed. You're going you're to prophesy. You're, and all these things, all these things happen. I mean, you talk about affirmation from the Lord that Samuel's not just some crazy guy, but God actually sent him and I'm really supposed to be king. All of these things happen. Wow. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. He said to the sons of Israel, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt. He goes on to describe, uh, so Samuel brought the tribes of Israel forward. The tribe of Benjamin was selected by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin up, his families. The Matrite family was selected by Lot. Uh, and, uh, and Saul, the son of Kish, was selected by Lot. So look, they're casting lots, and God providentially, every one of them is falling exactly where he wants. But look at this. And Saul, the son of Kish, was selected by Lot. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. And then verse 22, the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. So they ran, they took him from there. And when he stood among, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. Samuel said it to the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Surely there's no one like him. All the people shouted, long live the king. And so Saul then moves into the kingship. Um... And he attacks the Ammonites in, in chapter 11. You get to chapter 12. The king is confirmed. But here's where all of a sudden you start to see. Uh, chapter 13, for Saul was 30 when he began to reign. He reigned for 42 years. But then again, I'm going to have to move quick for the sake of, for the sake of time tonight. What you're going to watch happen with Saul, and I've, and, I've, and I've gave you all that background because you need to see it. When you watch happen with Saul, there's going to be several major moments where Saul is told to trust the word of the Lord in the face of dire battle. There's going to be moments where Saul is told to wait on the prophet of on, on the judge of God, the prophet on, on Samuel. Because Samuel not just is not just a transition from judge to king, it's also a transition from judges to the ministry and, and, the, and the rising up of prophets. You, the term seer was there. That would be an original term for prophet. And, 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 and you're going to watch Saul. He hid on the day of his of his public pronouncement. He's going to go forth in fear and sacrifice. He's going to disregard the word of the Lord and the command of the Lord in chapter 15 because he has a better idea of how this could work. You're going to watch Saul be a coward and his cowardice is driven by insecurity because he will not 
purely trust the word of the Lord. And it's an incredible. I never saw this contrast on a personal level until I really just read the book in broad chunks. And all of a sudden I began to see and go, wait a minute, look at what's going on here. There, there is clearly somewhere in Saul's life, there is an insecurity where he really doesn't believe God's word. He really doesn't believe God is with him. He really doesn't believe God has raised him up. He really doesn't. He looks the part. He is everything the people would dream, but he doesn't trust the Lord. And ultimately, he, he usurps his rightful role in the sacrifice, and God strips the kingship from him. Kingship would have stayed in your family, and he loses it. But then you get to chapter 16, and now we meet someone new. We meet David. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you, are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Uh, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite because I have chosen a king for myself among his sons. And then there's some conversation. So, um, when he gets to, to Jesse and, and gets to his sons, look at verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab, and he thought, Surely this one, look at him, the Lord's anointed is standing. But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is key with God, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass before Samuel, but he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shema pass by, but the Lord said, the Lord has not chosen him either. Jesse had seven of his sons go before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord's not chosen any of these. Are these all your boys? And then he said, the youngest is still left. Behold, he's tending the sheep. So here's what you find out about David. Jesse knows he's coming. He brings all his boys for the opportunity, except for David. The runt of the litter, he, he's not even going to be here. But do you notice the contrast? The first king of Israel, he looks the part. He's from the family that's a part. He, in every way, he fits the mold, the visual, the picture. Yet he is not a man whose heart is willing to trust what God says as God says it and follow in accordance. And so when it comes time to pick the new king, to anoint the new king, what does God tell Samuel? Don't you dare get caught up and whether someone looks like the right fit, seems like the right fit, sounds like the right fit, I don't care what a person looks like, sounds like, what family they fall out of. I care about a person's heart. And so we find David is anointed in, in, in the rest of the chapter, and we see God orchestrating then uh, circumstances to bring David into the path of Saul. And of course, then chapter 17, uh, David and Goliath. Or Dave and the giant pickle, if you're a VeggieTales person. It's good that Goliath is a pickle because pickles are disgusting. Uh, don't worry, my wife would rebuke me and she will later on. So for all of you who are upset about that, don't worry, it's already taken care of. Pickles are disgusting. Pickles and mayonnaise are disgusting. Just anyways. All right, it's not the point. Here is the point. Saul has the kingdom stripped because in a situation that's tough but not really that dire, 
He refuses to trust the word of the Lord and in fear acts on his own wisdom. The first thing off the bat for David is to demonstrate a courage and faith in the word of the Lord that no one in the entire army of Israel would have. That's, that's what David and Goliath is. We automatically see the difference in David and David as a leader, as a boy, as a teenager, as a young person than Saul. Philistines are there. You've got Goliath from Gath. He was, uh, you know, some people would say, you know, there's, if you go, all right, he's a nine foot guy. It maybe he was more like some real thick seven. There's, there's a picture. I should have, I didn't even think to pull this picture up. There's a great picture and it's a picture showing, I think it's Mark Wahlberg, who's, a, who's like 5'10", 5'11", slightly taller than me and, and jacked muscularly. Then it's next to him is The Rock, who I think is 6'3", and obviously insanely muscular. Next to him, I think, is Charles Barkley, who's I think 6'8", 6'9". And then next to all of them is Shaq who's, oh, what's Shaq, like 7'4", 7'3", 7'2"? Okay, if you look at that picture and you compare Mark Wahlberg to Shaq and understand that at this time, the average Israelite male was probably about 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, you will understand the panic in a, in a battle and contest of arms about Goliath. Because Shaq looks like he could fold Mark Wahlberg up and put him in his stomach and digest him slowly and painfully. I mean, and I, we, won't, we won't read it all, but just the description of Goliath and his weapons and his power, I mean, it's just, it's designed to strike fear. So uh, Jesse tells David, hey, take some, take some bread and cheese down to your brothers, which I think it's hilarious. That was bread and cheese. Lunchables were used back even then. Um, <laughs> David accepts. He goes, he, he goes down there. And listen to all this, verse 24. And when the men of Israel saw the man, that would be Goliath. They fled from him and were very fearful. They're following the fear of their leader. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. It will be that the king will make the man who kills him wealthy with great riches and will give him a daughter and make his father's house free. And Israel's like, listen, the king's offering everything to the one who takes him out and we're not there touching it. Then David said, uh, David said, hey, what will be done for the man? And they, they tell him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and rids Israel of the disgrace, the disgrace of our fear? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he has dared to defy the armies of the living God? And the people answer and they tell him what it would be. And, and of course, then they, his older brother who looks the part and is all masculine and looks, the, he, he gets on to David and David uh, David says, just a question. Uh, when the words David spoke were heard, they informed Saul. So some people hear David's courage and they go and whisper to Saul. David said to Saul, may no one's heart fail on account of him, your servant. I, hey, I'm 16. The entire trained army of Israel, the Navy, the Marines, and the army have all shown up and no one will do anything. I'll go do it. Saul said, you've not been able to go against the Philistines to fight him. You're only a youth. He's a warrior since he was a youth. Listen to this. David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. 
A lion or bear came and took a sheep from the flock. I went out after it and attacked it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it rose up against me, I grabbed it by its mane, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Amen, brother. You go take care of it. I'll stay here in my tent. I don't even go out and encourage the soldiers. So then Saul gives David all the military attire, puts all of this. David straps it all on, and it's clunky walking. And so David says to Saul, I can't go with these because I've not trained with them. And David takes all of the armor protection, everything off. Just like the pattern we've seen with God and bringing the people in, God doesn't fight battles the way we fight battles. And you see David here not following the Lord's leadership in the sense of, hey, David, I don't want you to wear that armor. You see David here so assured of God's character, he's making the choice on his own without being being told. Now, don't mistake, that doesn't mean if God had wanted someone to go in armor, they could have gone in armor. But there's, there's a contrast here being drawn. So he goes down, staff in his sand, he chased, and he, he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. They put in the shepherd's bag, which is the shepherd's pouch. The sling was in his hand. Now, I, I gave away, I had a bunch of slings, David's slings from Israel that I actually gave to uh, our former pastor's wife because they could never find them. They'd become scarce on their trips and their, their grandkids just wanted, I was, man, please take these. But all it is is, is, is a two simple things, a string with, with a, just a little pouch that you'd wrap a stone around. And it doesn't really look like something you could do much with, but when we were over there and we had a guy who had it, we said, hey, show us what this looks like. And he goes, okay. And he twirls. And man, when he popped his wrist, that stone flew out over 100 miles an hour and went further than you could ever see. So this is a very dangerous weapon. And it's obviously not a slingshot like Dennis the Menace. You don't pull it back. You sling it. So here we go. The Philistine came and approached David, the shield bearer, in front of them. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he was temptuous of him, for he was only a youth, reddish, with a, with a handsome appearance. Uh, and so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Are you serious? You're going to give me the twerp? Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild animals. I mean... Really put yourself here. Here's a battle scene. We got the Philistines on this side, the Israelites on this side. Every one of our soldiers is terrified. Here's this teenager who goes, this guy's talking smack against the Lord God of the universe. We're his people. We've been told by him not to put up with this. No one's standing up, so I'll do it. And I'm going to walk onto the battlefield against this giant clothed in his, his armor with weapons that only he could wield. I'm going to be in street clothes. This guy comes out and talks Pure wicked and trash and nastiness. And let's put it this way. You walk out to the most intense and violent, riotous protest in America in the last several years, and you're the only person. And you listen to those people with their profanity, curse you out and throw all of this. That's what he's doing. But look at David's response. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a saber. I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you, and I will remove your head from you. Then I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth, so all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to me. So then it happened when the Philistine came closer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
David put the, his hand in the bag. He took from it a stone. He slung it. He struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone penetrated his forehead. The stone hits his forehead so hard it embeds, and he fell on his face on the ground. And David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and the stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in David's hand. They didn't have a sword. So David ran over, stands over the Philistine. He takes that big, mighty sword that's described so you understand the power of the Philistine, and little old David pulls it out, takes it out, and he chops his head off with it. Is that not the exact picture? Think about Habakkuk, what we read Sunday, that the God of the universe who comes in victory against his enemies, not only will he conquer them, but it's said there in Habakkuk 3 that he will take their own weapons and stab them with them. And then the army raises up, they go after, and obviously this now sets, of course you see in chapter 18, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, and this sets up a contrast. We hear the term about David, he is a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? What does that mean that he's a man after God's own heart? Because we know from here, we're going to watch as David is just simply in the battle with Goliath, seeking to be faithful to God. That's all he's seeking to do. In the midst of all of the other men and leaders of his nation who are seeking to do anything but that and cower in fear. And the people, though, are going to respond to David's trust in the Lord, which both is uh, lived out by and spurs courage. And this is going to cause jealousy in Saul. And we're going to see this pattern for the rest of 1 Samuel. And I want you to understand if you're David, you have been, God has told you, Saul, I'm take, I have taken the kingdom from him. David, you're my king. David, Saul doesn't honor my word. You honor my word. And for the next at least 15 years, David will spend his life nonstop on the run from Saul. He'll hide in caves. He will be forced to go to the Philistines, to the Moabites, to seek shelter. He will have opportunities to take the life of Saul, but is such a man at this point of integrity that he will not take the life of Saul. You will see this in his Psalms, cries out for the Lord's protection. What I want you to understand with David is here is a man, we go, wow, David and Goliath. One, understand the contrast. David is out there on that battlefield, sprinting into battle with nothing there because David loves and honors the Lord and believes God will do what he says. And that we should do what God commands us to do. And ultimately, the way that reward plays out in his life is to suffer for the next 15 years. Now process that. Because I, I, even though many of us in this room, I would hope theologically would go, man, when you hear those prosperity preachers on TV who say, if you just trust Jesus, he'll give you health, wealth, prosperity, and everything you want. Hopefully we know that's wrong personally. Jesus does not promise us that. But I do think something that we particularly have a weakness towards as Americans, and I'm not knocking America because the inverse of this is I'm grateful we have the opportunity to live in the land of freedom we do. But I remember having a conversation with a student. He said, do you think God's taking his hand of blessing off America? I said, well, what do you think is God's hand of blessing? 
And what he proceeded, and he realized it, and it was intentional for me to ask, what he described nationally was what God's hand of blessing is health, wealth, and prosperity. Oh, wait, so the prosperity gospel that doesn't attach to ourselves personally, it counts for, it's, it's true for a nation? It's true for Israel, but no other nation's Israel. Here's my point. I think sometimes we, even though we know the right answers, still struggle with God. I am seeking to trust your word. I am taking steps to honor what you've told me to, and it's costing me everything. Yes, Jesus costs you and me everything. Bonhoeffer put it this way, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Is it free? Absolutely. There is no amount of eternal work you and I could ever do to get God to save us. But when we come to the Lord and we recognize I'm a sinner and Jesus, your Lord, I don't just need you to save me from my sin. I need you to save me from my sin because my life is yours. And when he saves us, our life is his. And it is also God's pattern in life. What's the other thing? Before God can use someone mightily, he must break them thoroughly. The rest of 1 Samuel will be David, a man who trusts the Lord, continuing to trust the Lord. You will see this man who trusts the Lord unwaveringly go to the Psalms that he writes, save, praying for his life from deliverance from the Philistines, deliverance from Saul, and realize you can trust the Lord with the faith that'll run out and take on Goliath, and you can still have heartfelt cries of, Lord, where are you? What's going on? Please deliver me. By the way, Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David wrote it. David wrote it. You get to the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is going to die. 2 Samuel is going to pick up and you're going to see David's reign. And the way that 2 Samuel breaks out uh, is really a fourfold structure. Chapters 1 through 10 are going to demonstrate further what I've just said, which is David's faith. You're going to see David as king walk mightily, faithfully, trusting the Lord. We're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, remember, uh, let's go... Um, can you go to, Rob, the, I think the third to last slide? Yes, okay. So David is going to go as king, and he's going to start conquering the land that Israel was supposed to. So this purple area right here, by the time we get to Saul, the people of Israel who were given all this land because of their idolatry during the time of the judges have lost all actually less than this, and Saul's conquering in battles, he gains this purple area. David comes to the throne, and in chapters 1 through 10, he conquers all of this area. You see David's faith. He is, he is carrying out the Lord's word that the people and generations before him failed to. And God has blessed and allowed the land that he promised to them because God is a faithful God to his covenants. You see in chapter 5 that the city of Jerusalem, remember what it said in Judges, that the tribe of Benjamin failed to drive out the, Benji, the, the Jebusites? David, chapter 5, 2 Samuel, he comes in, drives out the Jebusites. And Jerusalem's right there drives him out. He makes Jerusalem now his city. And if you'll go uh, to that last slide, or the next slide, then not the last, the next slide. Here is an artist rendering of what the city of David, Jerusalem, would have looked like. And you can see a lot of this, these ruins uh, and, and kind of layout still in modern day Jerusalem. It's going to be from this palace. He's going to, he's going to be walking with the Lord. Key, major, massive moment. 
Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 3, the fall and God's promise to bring someone, a, a Messiah, a deliverer. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, where God tells Abraham, Abraham, it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of anything you are. I'm choosing you. I'm going to make a great people from your nation. That'll be a blessing to all the worth. I'm going to give them a land. And God walks through. Remember, the covenant there is just God's covenant to Abraham. The people that come from Abraham, from, from the child of supernatural birth, uh, the Israelites, they they flourish down in Egypt. God brings them out. There is the Mosaic. So Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. That would be the law, Sinai. That's where God says, this is what I promise as your God to be for you. Here's what I expect you as my people to walk with me. When you walk with me, you will experience my favor and blessing. When you reject me, you will experience my discipline which we know from Proverbs and Hebrews is actually driven not just by the justice of God, but by the personal love of God for people to walk with him. And then you come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and this is critical. This is a massive moment in the story of Scripture. We call it the Davidic covenant. Sorry, uh, it's, it's, it's not 9. That would be David's kindness to Mephibosheth, Saul's last remaining son. Go to uh, 2 Samuel 7. David came about the king lived in his house right about here. The Lord said to him and had given him rest. He's conquered all this land. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I live in this beautiful house, but the ark of God remains in this shabby tabernacle for Moses day. And then Nathan says, go do all that's in your heart. So basically what David says is God has blessed me I'm living in this beautiful house. I believe there should be a house for the ark of God, which signifies the glory of God and his presence with his people. There should be something beyond this tent. He wants to create a temple for God, driven by a pure-hearted desire. But look with me, verse 8. Now then, this is what you shall say, God speaking to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a leader over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will establish a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them so they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will a malicious people oppress them ever any more previously. Even from the day that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is talking to David personally. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you. And I will establish, notice, I'll raise up your descendant, singular. I will establish his kingdom, singular. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. And when he, when he does wrong, now here's where you're moving in and out of prophecy to literal truth. And by literal, I mean, now we're talking about Solomon like his literal son. I will discipline him with the rod of men with strokes of the son of mankind. My favor shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall endure forever. This is what we call the Davidic covenant because this is the point where David, who's of the tribe of Judah, where God, because of David being a man after God's own heart, who trusts the Lord, who honors his word, God comes to him hearing the, the, the hearted desire of David to make a temple. And God says, David, it will always be your descendant on the throne. Now, we ultimately know that 
Who's the son of David? Well, literally, it's Solomon and several others, but who is it messianically? It's Jesus. Jesus is the promised descendant, the promised king of David, and this is where God makes that covenant with David. Now, there's a turning point here. After you get past chapter 10, you're going to see in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you're going to see David's faults. Yes, he's a man after God's own heart, and here's an encouragement. He's a man after God's own heart who blows it horribly. And from the best I know in this room, worse than anyone else in this room from a worldly standpoint, because I'm pretty sure no one in here has literally murdered somebody before. David did. David did after he sexually assaulted and manipulated his wife. And I say that because what chance did Bathsheba have? Maybe it was consensual, maybe not. But back in that day, you don't have the right to tell the king no. David went after her. David forced himself to her. David, that whole narrative with Bathsheba, it starts out with saying, this is the time of the kings go to war. Yet David's not as a king out to war. He's sitting in his house where he shouldn't be. He's not being faithful already to lead his people. You see this, and here's why I point this out. What makes David a man after God's own heart? It's not that David is perfect, because he's not. It's even when he fails, and he is finally confronted with it. Rather than continuing to run in sin like the faithless Israelites, he repents at the word of God. Psalm 51, reflecting his repentance there, he accepts the consequences of the sin of God. That son with Bathsheba dies. And there's a little interesting statement that where he talks about seeing that son in heaven, which is part of why uh, when we, this on a pure, totally different note, you didn't think we were hitting tonight, Absolutely, I think Scripture affirms that there is some means to which God delivers those, uh, those who are unborn and those who are unable to respond because they are not developed, because obviously that was David's expectation, and David understood the word of the Lord. By the way, David's Psalms, David's Psalms, if I remember right, are quoted as more times in the New Testament as prophecy than any of the prophets. So David a man after God's own heart. What is the key distinctive of being a person after God's own heart? It is a person who loves the Lord with entirety of being, who trusts what God actually says, and with abandon seeks to live out what God says. And even when they stumble, rather than, rather than hardening their heart, rather than living in condemnation and beating themselves up over it, they turn back and repent to the Lord at his word, trusting that God's gonna bring forgiveness in their life, just like he says. And for you and I as New Testament believers on the other side of the cross, filled and sealed with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who are washed and redeemed in the blood of Christ, if you go out tonight and commit a sin, if you're in Christ, it's already forgiven. What we're repenting of is, Lord, I am sorry I turned my eyes off and I'm coming back to be restored to right fellowship, not back to right relationship, already in right relationship, and you can't lose it. Because here's the other thing. Not only is David a man after God's own heart, but did you see that there, what he says here? God says, I'm establishing my throne. And let me paraphrase what he says. And even if your descendants jack it up and don't follow me right, I am faithful to my word and I will still make sure that it's your throne. So turn that to us. You and I, we're under the new covenant. And when God brings salvation in our life, even if we jack up what God's expectations are, God is faithful to the covenant he made with us at the moment of salvation in the blood of Christ. 
man, we go off on there, but that's a sermon for a different time. Now, let me just give you real quick to wrap up where we're at. Major writings of David's would be the Psalms. David writes the overwhelming majority of the Psalms. We'll look at Psalms uh, another time. We find in Samuel, we see a, a man after God's own heart. That means faith in the word of God, obedience at the word of God. We also see God's protection. We see his provision. We see his providence. There's incredible, incredible, oh my goodness, I wish we, we were just going. There's incredible stories of what God does and to protect David, to preserve David. When you come into Kings and Chronicles, I'll do more of an overview of what those are, but when you get into uh, next time, but when we get into Kings, you're going to see the transition from David's reign to Solomon's reign. Solomon's reign is going to start out wonderfully. God's going to say, David, your job is to get the things ready for the temple for your son to build. Solomon's going to be the one to build the temple. You're going to see Solomon initially, he's, he's going to become king as this young man. And, and initially, not only is he incredible, he says, Lord, God says, I'll give you anything you ask, Solomon. And really be honest, think about it. If God ever came to you and said, I'll give you anything you ask, especially when you're young. And Solomon says, I need your wisdom. God says, it so delights me. You want wisdom? I'm going to heap even more upon you. Solomon starts out wise. It's in, that, it's in that wisdom. He leads the people. There's peace and prosperity under your reign. You even see, go back to the, the slide right before this, please. You see Solomon even adds this area. Then go to that last slide. Solomon then also engages the, the wonder and greatness of Solomon brings all these peoples you talk about mass international trade. Israel grows and prospers, and there's a buildup in, so, in the narrative of Solomon. Chapters, chapter 1 of 1 of, of, of Kings is the transition over to Solomon. Chapters 2 through 4 shows Solomon beginning well. Chapters 5 through 8 shows the construction, the dedication of the temple, which is finished in 960 B.C. Uh, chapters then uh, nine, 9 through 10, uh, instructions to Solomon. You see the, the vastness, the greatness, the queen of Sheba coming up from the south, but the hinge point is chapter 11. When it makes this statement, chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Kings. Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women from the nations of which the Lord said to the sons, you shall not associate to them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly woo your hearts away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And listen to the statement, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. And his heart had not been wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father. And it talks about then the idolatry that he brings in. And because he is the leader of the people as king, he's not just the political protector, but he is also serves as a defunct spiritual leader. And this is what introduces, again, rampant pagan idolatry, sin, covenant unfaithfulness, that by the time Solomon's life ends will result in the, in the splitting of the kingdom. The kingdom will no longer be united, the kingdom of Israel. Instead, now it'll be two. The northern kingdom, which goes by Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, the southern kingdom, Judah, which includes Benjamin and some Levites. And this is a story of the divided, the divided kingdom. Uh, will come Solomon in his life. We see three different works attributed to him. Song of Solomon, which is about uh, a, rom a romantic marital love. Um, very much so. It's not what the early church said, which is an allegory for Jesus and the church. Definitely does not fit that. Uh, but it's very uh, 
I'll give you a heads up when we cover that in case it's when kids are in the room, so kids won't be in the room. Um, Proverbs, words of wisdom, which ironically, the book of Proverbs ends with what? Come on, any lady in here who's ever been to a church women's conference should be able to answer this question. Proverbs 31 women, which is the opposite of what Solomon married. And if he had followed Proverbs 31, would not have fallen down. Isn't that fascinating? And then Ecclesiastes, which if, if Solomon wrote it, I think Solomon wrote it. Some would say maybe someone else, but Solomon would write Ecclesiastes clearly at some point towards the end of his life where he has maybe had a moment to wake up and realize what's there. And so the kingdom will split and we will see what takes place there. Um, and and, and uh, you see that taking place most there in Kings, uh, First and Second Chronicles. I'll give you the overview next time there because it also covers some of David and Solomon's reign. But this is the narrative. You see God now. He's brought, he's promised a, a Messiah, Genesis 3. He's made a covenant with Abraham to bring a people through Abraham, through a chosen son, whom he asked Abraham to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. But he provides another way. Through that chosen son comes twins. Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob, not Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph, sold into slavery at the sin of his brothers and the providence of God taken to Egypt. He will suffer deeply for it. God will teach him and work him and mold him and shape him in that suffering. So he becomes the second most powerful man in the world who serves as a conduit for the people of God to come down. It, uh, Jacob, when he dies, is going to bless his sons. And through Jacob's word, Judah is going to be called the king tribe, the messianic tribe, the people of God in Egypt. There's, there are only 70 when they go, but after 400 years, just like God tells Abraham, they are anywhere from one and a half to four million by the estimates that most scholars have. They're now enslaved. God raises up a deliverer to whom he reveals himself personally, Levite, priestly tribe, who will serve as priest, prophet. He will send him. He will go into the land. Thus saith the Lord, God will demonstrate his glory to the Egyptians uh, in, in the plagues. God will deliver his people miraculously through the Red Sea. God will call them into covenant relationship, Mount Sinai. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is what this means. We see the first generation's absolute refusal to trust God. We see then the, the discipline 40 years in the wilderness because God is faithful. He doesn't just chunk them all out. He raises up a new generation. Joshua leads that new generation into the promised land. God teaches them how to fight, to fight by his word, not by just swords, swords and spears. They got to learn how to trust his word and fight by his word before they can fight by swords and spears because they do fight by swords and spears. They come in that first generation. They, they take the land. God leads some land unconquered because he wants to leave something for the subsequent generations to learn how to fight, how to yield, how to honor his word. But the subsequent generations turn from God they don't recognize God as king. They don't honor him. They do their own things, judges. And God brings discipline, but God is faithful. He doesn't wipe them out. We see God's heart for the nations. He spares Rahab the prostitute. Ruth, at a time when no one in Israel is seeking God, Ruth, a Moabite woman, says, your God will be my God. And God from her brings a son who fathers Jesse, who fathers David, the man after God's own heart. And when God's people and their wickedness, they reject God and reject his kingship and want a king. God lets them have a king that's everything they could ever dream and ride up to look like the other nations. And it's a king who's weak, who fails because he doesn't trust the word of the Lord. But then God raises up one who's unexpected, whose own father didn't even think he was good enough, not from a renowned family, but from agriculture folk. 
And that young boy trusts the word of the Lord. And God uses him. God shapes him, molds him. God uses him. God raises him up. He, he conquers the land that the people were supposed to conquer. He leads. And in fact, in the history of Israel, the only two times you see the people of Israel truly walking in covenant obedience with God is the generation of Joshua and the generation of David. It's only two times in the whole Testament. God says, your descendant will be on the throne forever. We know that's Christ. We see David as man's own heart. You see this progressing. You see this movement. You see this. And then you see in, in a sad deal, you see God being faithful. You see God protecting. You see God orchestrating, moving, and shaping history. And in a tragic deal, you see one who would come who would uh, violate the clearly expressed word of God, right? God wouldn't let Samuel miss him by accident. Sal Solomon didn't miss God by accident. He missed him by choice. He violated what was clearly written. He didn't trust the word of the Lord. His wives influenced. He went towards and in his leadership. And by the way, that leadership applies wherever. If you're the spiritual leader of your home, if your heart bows titles, don't be surprised when the rest of your home bows titles. Our churches are in such rough states. Don't be surprised that our churches are in such rough states because our pastors are in rough states. If God calls someone to be a leader, whether it's in home, whether it's in business, whether it's in church, it means something. Doesn't mean people can't follow righteously. We'll see moments where that happens, raise up, but people follow the leader and they follow into abandon and we'll see where that plays out from here. Oh my goodness, I just wish we had more time. We don't, so we're gonna stop there. And I hope your heart's encouraged and I hope you're challenged along with me. We have to be people. If nothing else from tonight, get this. God is faithful to his word and we have to be people when we walk well and when we fail who actually walk according to the word of the Lord and with a ferocity of conviction in the midst of a world that will tell you to doubt everything the word says, but really trust God is who he says he is and he said what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, and it matters that we actually know what it means and walk with him rightly because that's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Who loves the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength manifests itself in loyalty to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, may we be people and may we be a church that looks like David and not like Saul. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you provide. Lord, may our eyes be opened. Lord, we live in a day and age with a lot of Goliaths and a lot of Philistines. With the grace and compassion and gentleness of the New Testament, Lord, may we give an account for the hope that you have for us and may we march out to those battle lines and may we dig in our feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. May we clothe ourselves with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, Lord. May we, may we wrap all of it in the, in the belt of truth which enables us to move and we gird our loins with the belt of truth, Lord, and may we run on that battlefield holding up our shield of faith to the, enemy, the arrows of the enemy. May we take out our sword of the Spirit. May we run on that battlefield, Lord, not against the Philistines. Because our Goliaths aren't all the voices of this world which are screaming in anger at us. But it's the powers and dominions and the forces of spiritual darkness whom you already have victory over. You've already told them you have victory over. Their time is short. May we run as ambassadors of heaven as medics on the field of battle where there are dead all around us, 
who need to hear your gospel, and if they would respond, be brought to life. And God, may we not give an inch to the lies of the enemy, but may we be people of your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.